Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Swetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmikulu. And we're going across the pond this week. Again, yeah. So again, so no territorial acknowledgement for the text that we're studying, although it does, I don't know, takes place somewhere in the north of England or sort of like the middle of England. Mm-hmm. It's kind of deliberately not specific. And mm-hmm. I think unlike our placenessness episode here in the US slash Canada, I think the point here is that it doesn't really matter so much as you know that it is away from the big city and kind of isolated, right? Yeah, and we have this very particularly English socioeconomic context where like the whole town is basically owned by this one rich guy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like they all basically live on this estate. And so the choices he makes about his land... Affect everyone. They affect everyone and they're pretty capricious. It's funny Mm -hmm. because when I was teaching in Wales... We spent time in this little community and it was the same idea, like literally this one guy who's like a lord, he's like responsible for all of the land and he interviews people before they're allowed to buy houses there. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. 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 So folks, we should also say we are talking about Aiden Chambers' The Toll Bridge, and this is oh, yeah. our book club episode. <laughs> right. We're talking about Aiden Chambers' The Toll Bridge. Um, yeah, we are. And uh, this is a book that I have a really long history with, actually, and have read several times. But Joe, it was brand new to you, hey? It is entirely new to me. I've never read a single Aiden Chambers book. Although when you talked about Chambers as an author, because you've mentioned him before in one of the minisodes, I can't even remember when, but a long Mm -hmm. time ago, Mm -hmm. I realized that I believe my mom had actually read some Aiden Chambers because my mom is very much into British literature and culture. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this for me was the first Aiden Chambers book I ever read, The Tollbridge, and I went on to read, I think, all the rest of them. He's got a bunch of novels and short stories, but there's a particular six that he refers to as being part of what he calls the dance sequence, which starts with Dance on My Grave, which I think has been, is that the one that got adapted this year, Joe? It is, yes. And it'll be coming out a little bit later this summer. So I would like to explore that one with you later. But um, Mm -hmm. all the books in the series are really about this sort of moment where you break from childhood. In the case of the Toll Bridge, it's about sort of first discovering your independence, but they all have this isolation, young people on their own trying to figure things out, definitely a lot of sexual awakening happening in these books. Mm -hmm. And the Toll Bridge is the least queer of all of them. The other books in the sequence all actually center gay relationships. And the Toll Bridge is more like... um, sort of a pretty classic like triangulation of desire situation with two guys and a girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more of a questioning, but not really acting on it. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so for me, uh, I actually read these books when I was a teenager. I gotta say, I remember, I remember the Tollbridge being I remember that scene. So there's a scene in the Tollbridge where Mm -hmm. our main character Jan watches the other two characters, Tessa and Adam having sex through a window. Yes. 
I remember that in my head as being like way more graphic than it actually is. And I suspect oh, it's because okay. it's one of the first such scenes I ever encountered as a teenager. Right. Yeah. Because I remember when you were first talking about this, you said that it was like sexually graphic and it is to a certain degree, but I think I was expecting something quite a bit more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fair. I got to it and I was like, is this the scene I <laughs> Wait. But for me, I think it really probably was the first time I encountered something so sort of frankly discussing sex. Like there's no panning away <laughs> in that moment. And I think that's what it was for me. So I don't know. I think it would be too far to say that these books were like part of an awakening, but they were, I think, a very different way of encountering the world than I had experienced either in my life or through books before. And I think that they were really important to me for that reason. Mm -hmm. And I always really relate to the isolation or the sort of quest for solitude that Chambers' protagonists are almost always on. What's well, interesting that you say that, because we actually did get a couple of responses, because this is book club, Yay. so it's obviously meant to include listener responses as well. So Yay. we heard from two people, Miriam and Jane, and we're going to start a little bit with Miriam just because she touches on that isolation concept. So... For context, Miriam says, I used to love all Aiden Chambers' books when I was a teenager, and I've read them all multiple times. And she clarifies, possibly because the village she grew up in had a tiny library, so she had to reread mm. a lot of those books, which I love because that was my experience when I was visiting my grandparents in New Brunswick for the summer. I would basically just go and devour every book in their tiny little library <laughs> in the nearby town. <laughs> So Miriam clarifies that she also read this with her nostalgic goggles on. But mm. interesting that you talk about the isolation because Miriam says, when I was 14, I was drawn to the idea of leaving home and living in an old little house and collecting tolls. And this really fed into her running away fantasies immensely. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think that's a very relatable thing. It's not just, oh, I hate my parents. I don't want to live here anymore. It's this idea that in order to find yourself, you need to leave the comfort of the nest. I think a lot of us go through this phase in our teenage years where it's less about rejecting our specific parents or our specific town or our specific context, and more like just wanting to drop out of everything, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of like, you know, the world doesn't understand me. And um, Chambers captures that really well, that sort of ennui that descends when you feel trapped by your circumstances. And what's exciting about a book like The Toll Bridge is that it suggests a way out, like another option that, I don't know, I'd certainly never imagine that you could literally go and live at a toll bridge before I read this book. It's certainly of another era. Yes. And it does feel distinctively English, even though I think the mm -hmm. tale itself is quite relatable. But Brenna, let's maybe do a quick plot recap in case folks haven't oh, yeah. had a chance to read the book. Yeah, yeah, really good idea. Okay, so... We have uh, all these double-named characters in the book, so I'm going to use the names that they use for each other for okay. the most part, just to be clear. So our protagonist's name is Jan, or at least that's what he's known by in the book. Mm -hmm. And he's really having that very common late teenage experience where, like, nothing in my life feels authentic, man. Like, <laughs> I'm living for other people. He finds his parents suffocating. He finds his girlfriend's expectations of him possessive. And he just wants out. And so he basically drops out of school. Mm -hmm. 
and I don't understand the British secondary school system. Can I just say? <laughs> it's like his what is like L levels or something, whatever. Anyway, so he's dropped out. He's not doing whatever thing that is that gets you into university. And instead, he takes a job literally collecting tolls on a toll bridge. And even within the context of the novel, this is archaic. So the book was written yes. in 1992. And this is very much we're already at the end of the period of actual human beings in toll bridges. Mm -hmm. And that transition is sort of part of the narrative, right? This world that Jan has tried to escape into is itself going to yeah. disappear. At the toll bridge, he makes a very close friend, Tess, and she is the daughter of the sort of manager of the property. And I don't know what the word I'm looking for, a wanderer <laughs> comes by named Adam, who sort of stumbles into their lives. And Jan has a crush on Tess, but is intrigued. Intrig yeah, and he's very intrigued by Adam, and he's very aware of Adam's body and Adam's presence in his mm -hmm. space. Well, I think just because Adam has a kind of confidence that Jan yeah. doesn't embody, Adam is repeatedly described as charismatic and attractive, and you get the impression it's all of these things that Jan is not, even though we ourselves don't really know that much about Jan because it is written in first person. So mm -hmm. it's not until we get the test passages and even like the descriptions of photos that she's taken of Jan over his time manning the toll bridge that we have an understanding of what he looks like and uh, how he holds himself and so on. Yeah, I think that's, that's really important. Chambers has referred to this kind of writing about relationships as like a recognition story. It's this time in your life when you can't always distinguish between like fascination and sexual interest and mm -hmm. friendship like it's really sort of heady and i will say that sexuality in general in the novel and in all of aiden chambers novels is a pretty fluid concept like yes people are just sort of attracted to each other as bodies and it reminds me very much of that ethos of the 90s that predates the trans discourse that we are having now which was a real move towards sort of androgyny and fluidity in gender roles and you can kind of see elements of that in in this book mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah this book is so interested in performative gender roles and like what is not just expected of young people but like young men and young mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. definitely anyway all this to say plot wise there's I, a whole bunch of sort of stuff and also nothing that happens yeah, it's the weirdest <laughs> thing isn't it because i was yeah. reflecting back on this and thinking so what happens in this book it's basically just a lot of character interactions until you get to the night of the party yep and the night of the party is when everything kind of kicks off so all the way along jan has been writing but not sending letters back to his girlfriend who has been writing him sort of increasingly frantic letters and Tess steps in and in a I still find a motivationally strange choice on Tess's part oh, she yeah. invites Jillian the girlfriend Jillian right mm -hmm. to this party as small town parties typically do things get out of hand because when there's only <laughs> one place to go and you find out about it you go whether you're invited or not and so very alcoholic and very sexy yes and and it's just bodies either drunk bodies or or sexualized bodies. It's just bodies everywhere. Jillian appears in the middle of this uh, mm -hmm. to see basically Tess feeling Fondling. up Jan in this game, <laughs> this drinking game that they're playing. 
Oh dear, I loved it because it was so <laughs> classic. I I could just imagine the adaptation of this book as a film, yes. and it's like, oh, I've seen this scene a million times. Oh, you showed up at the exact wrong moment. Yes, exactly. And of course, so Jillian goes running off. She ends up bumping into Adam outside. She thinks that Adam is a rapist, so she mm-hmm. attacks him. He hits his head against the bridge itself, and he effectively disappears. Jan doesn't attempt to fix anything with Jillian. He goes after Adam, looks after him. What they discover is that Adam is having like amnesia, Mm -hmm. or is he? And suddenly everything starts to unravel. And ultimately what we discover is that this is less the moment of amnesia than the entire time that Adam's been at the toll bridge. He's escaped from a hospital for violent offenders, effectively. Mm -hmm. And the sort of the story leaves us with Jan trying to make sense of this whole experience and still not really plugged back into life, if he Mm -hmm. ever will be. Adam, we leave in the hospital. He's further regressed, yeah. Yes, further regressed. I think he's about, he's imagining himself as being about 11 at that point. And Tess is sort of still kind of the glue that ineffectively holds this whole thing together. And, And the story is... Not a particularly satisfying ending. It just sort of drops. Yeah, if closure is your thing, you are not going to enjoy the end of this. It was interesting because I found there's not a ton of information about the book online. I don't know if it's just because it's from the 90s or if it's Mm. because it's from the UK. But I did find a couple of reviews and one that struck me mildly amusing because I was like, hmm, this is a bit dickish, but <laughs> it's from a gentleman named Roger Sutton. He's a critic for the Bulletin of the Center for Children's Books, and part of his review is, the whole thing has a self-referential postmodern glossiness that gets in the way under this pointlessly obfuscating layer, so he's talking about the the way that the book is written, mm. Chambers' language, under this pointlessly obfuscating layer, though, is an intense story about four teens in emotional and often sexual obsession with each other as they seek self-definition as well as ways to connect. But then he goes on to lambast the quote-unquote twist as being too melodramatic, but something that may be appealing to teenagers. Mm. Which I thought was interesting. I actually don't think teenagers would find this ending satisfying at all. This feels like a very adult way to end the book. So there's a lot to unpack there. First, the lack of just reviews of these books online. I think in many ways, the sort of moment for Aiden Chambers has perhaps passed. Right. These, I think, are very much of a particular way of moving through the world that was appealing to teenagers in the 90s, a certain amount of nihilism and unfinished business. Mm Mm-hmm. There's been several scholarly works done on Aiden Chambers, but one in particular from Coming of Age in Children's Literature that I got to read to you because I think it ties in exactly with what we're talking about here. And it's a good segue into Jane's question about the ending too. So writing of this kind suggests an author articulating his struggle with the materials of his craft, but it challenges readers too, teasingly inviting them into an authorial conversation about fiction and truth. Is anything resolved in these novels? Perhaps a more appropriate question would be, can anything ever be resolved in a narrative devoted to adolescence? Mm -hmm. If it is the nature of maturation that is always in process and never complete, maturation narratives must accordingly be fluid, uncertain, and open-ended. Chambers' maturation narratives are inevitably always unfinished, 
not just a series of events still unfolding, but a conversation between an impassioned writer and an engaged reader about what it is like to know everything and to have experienced nothing. Oh, wow. I kind of love that. Because <laughs> right? that really does, that that encapsulates so much of what I was feeling. Because I felt completely not emotionally prepared for what this book does. Like, yes. I had no idea where it was going. I think I even messaged you at one point that I said, I'm enjoying this, but I don't know what the heck is going on. Yes. I think those were your exact words, actually. <laughs> it just, it so embodies my own personal experiences of like what I remember it was like to be a teenager. It's just so confusing and emotionally overwhelming and uncertain. And you keep waiting for the moment where you will make some kind of realization like this is what life is. Like I vividly remember asking my mother, when did she figure out what life was about and like feel comfortable and not anxious about what was happening next. And my mom, who I think at the time was maybe 50, turned to me and just said, uh, I haven't figured it out. And I don't <laughs> think I'll ever figure it out. But I'll let you know. <laughs> and it was horrifying, Brenna, yes. I realized, oh, my gosh, these feelings don't ever go away. But it feels like in your teenage years, that's the first time that you ever really realize like before that point you've just kind of been living a carefree existence and it all just comes rushing at you as a teenager yes i agree completely and it's one of the reasons why i think this book resonated so much with me when i was that age because i was such i mean it's gonna surprise you joe but i was a really in my head kind of teenager what <laughs> i am shocked and aghast and so one of the other things that, that has been written about Chambers writing is, so on the one hand, you've got this unresolvedness, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other hand, and this is from the same article, in these six novels, there is more than any other young adult fiction, a powerful sense of adolescent physicality. Mm -hmm. And there's this tension in Jan's life, right, between this guy who lives so much in his head and is obviously going to be a writer, right? Like that's mm -hmm. obviously where Jan's trajectory is going. And simultaneously, somebody who does want to get lost in his body. Like when he watches Tess and Adam, there's this line where it's like, I mean, he's being pervy. He's literally watching oh, this. For sure. but, there's, but there's this line where he says it's like less my desire for Tess and more my admiration for Adam, like watching a friend do something they're really good at. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like his desire to be able to be like Adam and free in his body. I think I think a lot of sort of self-conscious up in their head teenagers kind of live in that in that tension. And I liked that about this book, although I recognize that it's very much unresolved by the end. Mm-hmm. That actually brings me to Jane's question, which is not something that I had thought of previously. No. So good one on you, Jane. Yes. Yes, definitely. So uh, first of all, Jan has some really nice thoughts about how this book is kind of a foil for a Manic Pixie Dream Girl book, because the extent to which Tess is a bit of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl from Jan's perspective, and mm -hmm. yet she gets to interject her own perspective on oh, what I he's love, writing about her. I love those rejoinders so much. Me too. And folks, if you haven't read this book, it's basically like we're reading Jan's thoughts all the time, and then we'll just get parentheses with Tess basically yep. saying like no that's actually not how it happened and you're you know you're indulging in this 
how dare you speak for me because I don't even remember it this way. And it's fascinating to read because it really contradicts the first person narration and the unreliable narratorness. Like Miriam actually commented on the fact that a Jan is kind of a terrible character, but uh-huh. also that he's an unreliable narrator. We can't uh-huh. always trust what he's saying because he doesn't remember them the same way as Tess does. Yes. And we come to trust Tess more, I think. Oh, a hundred percent. She's yeah. so much more competent than Jan yes. is. Yeah, which is a really again a really nice twist to a manic pixie dream sort of framing, right? Mm-hmm. Is that we we consistently as the book progresses realize that Tess is the person we should be listening to. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but Jane goes on to say, I'm also wondering if the way Jan deals with Adam's illness at the end is some casual ableism along the lines of what we saw in all the bright places, whether survivors get to learn lessons and be better people because of others' illness, but I'm not sure exactly. Mm-hmm. I really liked this question because it got me thinking, I didn't read it that way, and I have never read it that way, but this book is also a book that I first encountered long before I had a strong awareness of ableism, Mm -hmm. sort of conceptually, and so I don't trust my own reading of it. Where I would say that this book differs from something like All the Bright Places, and I'm, I'm happy to be disagreed with here, Joe, Okay, is I think the lack of tidy resolution like, does Jan mm-hmm. learn a lesson from this? Or is this just a thing that happened, right? Is, I think, a tension at the end of the book. And depending yeah. on which way you read how the book ends, I think that's going to shape whether the ending feels ableist or not to you. Does that make sense? It 100% does. And I feel like I'm right there with you because I'm not certain that Jan does learn something. If anything, he gains a certain satisfaction at unraveling Adam's mystery because Adam is actually Ashton and he's got this troubled past and it turns out that the Adam that he knew was never a real person it was a projection of what Ashton wanted and thought he should be and I thought that was fascinating because there's this moment where Jan actually asks the doctor can I come back and the doctor Mm -hmm. says yes but not too frequently because really you know this guy needs to get better Mm-hmm. But Jan says, well, if Adam comes back, can you let me know? And it's like, but Jan, Adam isn't real. Isn't the Adam real. that you knew was never a real person. Yes. So I don't know that Jan has learned anything. Well, and in many ways, what that ending does is it reflects back. So the reason why Jan is called Jan is because mm-hmm. Tess, who is called Tess because she works at Tesco. <laughs> Jan is called Jan because Tess accuses him of being a Janus, right? Somebody who is two-faced, who presents one sort of version of themselves to one group of people and a different one to another. And Janus is the god, I guess, of bridges bridges and of making connections between people, which is kind of interesting, right? Because like it implies that in order to connect between people, there's always like a level of duplicity at play. Mm Mm-hmm. So all of this is wrapped up in Jan's identity. And one of the things that the ending with Ashton Adam brings up for me, so Adam never existed, right? No. But also, Jan never existed, right? Like, Jan's a person or a persona that Piers takes on when he's going through this moment in his life. And the only reason Jan persists is because... Tess allows him to, right? Tess gives him a place to live and makes it possible for him to sort of exist in this Jan state. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, what happens to Adam is Adam loses the place where he can continue to be Adam. And so he has to be Ashton. And so I'm just kind of fascinated by the duality. Every character has a doubleness. Yeah. And in fact, 
Tess is the only one who, her real name is Katie. Tess is the only one who is the same person, whether she's Katie or Tess. The Tess identity is imposed upon her by Jan, right? Whereas Jan and Adam are both these kind of dual selves. It's interesting that you say that, though, because you could argue, and you can push back on me for this, but you could argue that the Tess that Jan and Adam know and interact with in the Toll Bridge is different from the girl that she presents herself as at school and more specifically to her father. Now, whether that's just a maturation, like she's growing up and her father only still sees her as his little girl, which is like part of the tension within her family. Yes, but I don't know. It almost feels like when these three come together, they bring out the best Mm. in each other, which is actually like my favorite moment in the book, because I feel like it really encapsulates everything, is that moment where Tess kind of combatively, but also playfully admonishes Jan for reading Kafka and whether or not he actually understands it. (laughs) And he reads out a passage and they all connect with it in different ways. Mm. But it's very illuminating to who they are as characters and how they function as a triad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're totally right, actually. I love that scene. And I, yeah. It's so rich, right? Like It is. (laughs) Like Miriam says, you know, that she she loves Aiden Chambers, but she's not sure that she would actually recommend this book as an introduction to his Mm. novels because it is too philosophical. And I mean, I don't have the context for that, but I did find it really poetic and beautiful. A lot of the writing is gorgeous, but I do think this is almost too meaty for a teenager in some ways. And maybe that's unfair of me to say, but there's so much going on in this book. Well, it's interesting because Jane compares this book to Paper Towns. Mm -hmm. And I think you could probably draw a trajectory from a protagonist like Jane to the kinds of characters we see in John Green books. And I'm saying this because I can't think of a different way to say it, but sort of a dumbing down, right? Oh, 100%. Yes. So again, in that same article, and I promise this is the last time I'm going to quote from this article, but (laughs) the author describes Aiden Chambers' narrators and she says, The dominant voice is always that of a first-person young narrator, angry and rueful, articulate and witty, full of quotations and wordplay, self-conscious, self-obsessed, sex-obsessed, explicit and vivid, (laughs) full of the facetiousness and stylistic fireworks of intelligent adolescence. Yes. And uh, it's John Green could never, right? No. John Green wishes. There's a level at which that sort of performative intellect that we see in so many American YA books of a period, like so many of the John Green ilk, Mm -hmm. is like a pale shadow of what Jan is doing. Yes. Jan lives inside his head because he can't interact with other humans, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's incredibly well-read at the cost of understanding how to interact with people right and that's tess is the bridge between those two worlds (sighs) yes she is the bridge oh bridge yeah (laughs) (laughs) no you're absolutely right though i think that's what so impressed me about this like i told you off the air i don't think i'm gonna run to read another aiden chambers immediately because it's just a lot Mm -hmm. but there's something to be said for this book apparently being pitched at readers age 13 and up, which is one year older than Knots and Crosses, which we talked about last week as being just so simplistic. Yeah. There's something about this that also feels very distinctively 90s in that way, where you're just like, I trust my audience to pick up on this really hard, heavy, meaningful stuff. 
And honestly, I don't feel like we've encountered that in a really long time on the pod. Like, North American YA authors are not challenging their readers in the same way. No, I agree completely. This is this is literary, capital L literary, yes. in the same vein as like The Virgin Suicides, right? Which we sort of discussed is very much a, an adult book. Mm-hmm. I think Chambers demands a lot of his readers, and I think that's why people who find him sort of organically on their own tend to be really devoted to him. Mm. <laughs> but he's also, he's much better known in the UK and yes. definitely has his like little moment has passed. But I think he is still kind of a cult figure mm-hmm. because of that. Like not everybody's going to want to pick this up. It ain't a beach read. <laughs> like, put right. it that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think maybe this is a good place to stop. I would yeah. love to hear from folks if you did read this, but you didn't get a response into us before we recorded. If only just because I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on this, because I think this is so rich. It's almost like a tapestry kind of book where you could really dive deep into some of these various levels. Totally agree. And I do hope that we do Dance on My Grave. I think you'll enjoy the way the relationship is constructed, but yeah, we'll give ourselves some time to get back into <laughs> into the density of this world. Well, yes, and I've actually seen the film because I managed to catch Ooh. that at a film festival last year. So the film is French. It's called Summer of 85, and it's by a really well-respected French director and I found the film gorgeous but confronting and it didn't play out the way I expected, and now I think I've just realized, oh, that's Aiden Chambers. <laughs> That is the perfect place to end this conversation, Joe. (laughs) All right. Well, Brenna, before we talk about what we're going to be covering next week as a regular book, what is our next book club pick? Yes. So our next book club book, you've got about a month, so pick it up and get going, is Camp by Lev Rosen. And Joe, this is the first book club book that I have not picked. So I'm feeling a little tense. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And actually, I'll confess, I have not read this either. So this was a listener recommendation, Brenna. So this was recommended to us by Kendrick. And interestingly enough, this actually came in before we talked about a week away. So Kendrick didn't realize that we didn't have a lot of experiences with camp. So uh, he suggested that we consider this. And because it is Pride Month coming up next month, I thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity for us to A, read a queer text by a queer author, and also to have a full flesh discussion with our listeners about their camp experiences. So folks, even if you don't plan to read camp with us, we would love to hear about your camp experiences. Yes, because Joe and I are useless on the camp score. This is true. Yes. But uh, thank you, Kendrick, for this suggestion. And hopefully we'll have lots of things to talk about. This is a more contemporary text. It only just came out last year, I believe. So it should Mm -hmm. be very accessible. And speaking of Pride Month, Joe, I was noticing you have programmed us the queerest June ever. I'm so excited for it. Yeah, I'm I'm also very excited by these texts. We've got some really good stuff. But uh, Brenna, we're not quite there yet. We've got a regular book to read next week. I know, Joe. We're going back to the land of Judy Bloom, and I am so excited. I finished rereading Tiger Eyes just last night, and... I'm so excited for the film adaptation. I know I said this on the show before, but I can't get over it. It's adapted by her own son. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I also finished the book last night and freaking loved it. And I can't it's wait okay. to see how this world gets realized on the screen. I'm so excited for this one. And uh, yeah, and then I think that we should let people know, Joe, 
that they should be watching something to catch up for our next mini-sode because oh it's important that everyone be really on the same page for this. Mm-hmm. Yes, because, folks, we are asking you to watch two seasons of television. And by you, I mean me, because <laughs> Brenna and I are going to be covering High School Musical, the musical, the series. Yeah! Uh, the so first two exciting. seasons for our next mini-sode. I'm not rewatching season one. I watched it when everybody else did, Joe. It's your fault for being behind, but I am watching season two and I'm so happy about it. I don't even know what it is I'm watching, but I have thoughts. (laughs) It is uh, absolutely like chaotic Muppet energy on that show. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we will have some things to say. All right, folks. So go pick up camp. Send us your stories about camp. If you want to follow up on your thoughts on Aiden Chambers, we'd love to hear them. Mm-hmm. And get that tiger eyes out of the library. It's a quick read and you won't regret it. Mm-hmm. And if you want to send us thoughts on any of that, you know where to find us. We are at HKHSPod on Twitter or at the hashtag HKHSPod. If you just want to message Joe directly, Joe, where do they find you on the Twitters? I am at B stole my remote and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And if you have anything longer, you can send it to hkhspod at gmail.com. We've got some really good weeks coming up, Joe. I actually, Mm -hmm. I always love doing the show with you and I always look forward to our chats. But for the first time, I'm looking ahead at the calendar and like nothing is making me cringe. I'm excited for all of it. Uh, That's not entirely true. You programmed us an outlier, but I think we will have <laughs> oh, no shortage of things. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but that's going to be a good conversation. Oh, 100%, yes. <laughs> well, there's a teaser. Uh, until next time, folks, I will see you on the page, problematic or not, who knows? <laughs> and I will see you on them Judy Bloom screens. Woohoo!